everyone. Welcome to another episode of the In Search of Justice podcast. I am Ruchika. And I am Vandita. And we are your co-hosts on this journey to navigate what justice is. Today, we're going to specifically explore something extremely interesting that isn't often featured in our conversations on justice or even on feminism, for that matter, uh, very often. Um, and I'm actually looking forward to learning a lot from our guest. Um, our episode is going to focus on justice um, and urban planning and public safety. Before we begin, we'd just like to give you a trigger and content warning that there will be mentions of rape, sexual, physical, mental assault and also other forms of gender-based violence. We will be discussing justice, especially in the context of gender-based violence. And it may be difficult to listen to based on where you're at and how you're feeling right now. We encourage you to prioritize how you're feeling and step back and away from the podcast if you feel like it's getting too much and come back to it when you feel up to it. Thanks, Vandita. Um, so, Vandita, you've mentioned uh, in a couple, of the, uh, a couple of our past episodes that courts have structured uh, physically separate entrances uh, for cases of POXO so the survivor doesn't have to physically interact with the perpetrator. Um, And actually that was when I first started thinking of how we plan space and design space um, and how that can impact uh, justice or processes around justice or involving justice. Um, Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Thanks for asking and bringing that up, Ruchika. Um, I know that then I was speaking about more courtroom infrastructure, but a lot of my work has focused around how we can build spaces that nurture the sort of relationships and communities that can then lead to a reduction in gender-based violence and also sort of um, break away from a very Western idea of what sort of public spaces um, prevent gender-based violence, right? Like a general understanding of prevention of gender-based violence can often be around very what you would call sanitized public spaces and they are often very very oppressive to persons of different identities they involve a certain gentrification of areas Um, they do not account for the realities of the communities that live there and how they might have navigated those spaces all their lives and what safety might mean to them and what stakeholders in that community might make them feel safe i remember i was talking to you about how even Just the presence of vendors you've known all your life is a measure of safety for a lot of us. Uh, Whereas that may not be seen as a matter of safety by, say, public officials or by people who are planning. And that also often happens because the needs of different genders are not really taken into account while designing spaces. Um, So, yeah, this is where I think the idea of justice, public space and just gender-based violence comes for me as well. I think it's a very largely missing conversation because we're also often thinking about gender-based violence as something that you talk about once it already happens and we don't see the role of space design one as a tool of prevention and second as a space of building agency and access so that gender-based violence or harassment can be reduced or even if it's happening you can build more agency among survivors. Thank you, Vandita. So I'm just going to quickly introduce our guest for today's episode. Uh, we're super excited to have her on uh, with us. Uh, hi, Sneha. Hi, Rachika. Hi, Vandita. Um, so Sneha is a research fellow at, at Vindi Center for Legal Policy and also hosts the phenomenal, phenomenal podcast, The Feminist City, which I've learned a lot from. Um, that's actually kind of where we got the idea for this episode from. Um, would you like to quickly tell us something about yourself and your work, Sneha? Yeah, for sure. First of all, thank you so much. That is so nice of you. And it's, I mean, I mean, I guess 
it's always great to hear that the work that you do is uh, getting people to think about the things that you care about. So uh, just to give you a brief intro, um, I work as a research fellow at the Center for Legal Policy. My background is in law and liberal arts. Um, I predominantly worked in the in areas of urban development, uh, including urban heritage conservation uh, from a legal perspective. And at the, at the, what I work on right now, the project is looking at urban planning from a feminist perspective. I recently released a report called Making a Feminist City. And this is where I try to look at municipal governance and planning laws. And I'm trying to think about how to build more equitable and safer cities from a feminist perspective. And like you also mentioned, um, I run a podcast which uh, sort of tries to talk to different people uh, who work on cities from this perspective, try to unpack different, you know, different facets of uh, yeah, city life. Neha, your work has been extremely interesting. I think it really articulates um, what has been lost in terms of translating a lot of academic work into policy. And I think that's a great space to be in, um, to also build just public advocacy around thinking what our spaces can and should look like. So yes, thanks again for joining us. My first question for you is, um, if you could tell us a little bit about what feminist urbanism is, and also just understand um, and help our audience understand what public spaces include and what they stand for. Feminist urbanism is an approach to sort of, I mean, it's both an approach as well as a, a methodological tool, as well as a range of uh, practices. I think, you know, much like feminism, it, it's, you know, it encompasses quite a few things. Uh, just to give you a brief about where it comes from, I think um, a lot of uh, geographers and urban planners, particularly in the 1970s, and this has been happening for a while out of the women's liberation movement and the feminist movement, that started sort of applying a feminist perspective of wide variety of things were also thinking very critically about uh, urban development and city planning in particular so feminist urbanism is basically a critical approach towards planning uh, which centers women girls and gender and sexual minorities and essentially unpacks the assumptions that underlie urban development. Usually when we walk into the city, I think, which is which is something that I think a lot of feminists are engaged in, right? Um, a lot of the structures that we move about seem very normal and natural to us, but they're actually not. A lot of work goes into making them seem natural. Um, I don't know if anybody remembers this really beautiful example that Nivedita Tamaran Gibson seeing like a feminist in the opening page, where she says patriarchy is like nude makeup. So you spend a lot of time making it look like, you know, it's it's natural. So what feminist urbanism yeah, does is denaturalize and denormalize some of these systems to show us that the city looks and feels a particular way to, say, a majority of its dwellers by a specific thinking or a lack of thinking. So ultimately, when you look at, uh, when we look at uh, the city from a feminist perspective and adopt a feminist urbanism approach, uh, this benefits everybody because gender is one of those things that cuts across different communities and ultimately it enables the city to become safer for children, for elders. It just becomes a more accessible um, city. So just to give you briefly another a couple of lines about some of the ideas from a planning perspective, it's things like compact, mixed-use, diverse neighborhoods, which, you know, you I think people often hear the 15-minute city as a word, which basically means that when you start walking, uh, everything should be accessible. The neighborhoods should be compact. 
you know, in a way to limit urban sprawl. So feminist urbanism is also eco eco-sensitive in its uh, conception. The other thing would be something as simple as um, introduction or an emphasis on public infrastructure, emphasis on social services and ensuring that when you walk into the city at the point of uh, use, almost all services should be free, easy and accessible for everyone to be used. And then thirdly, pedestrian-centric street design. So any, any city design that focuses on the everyday pedestrian, these are basically some of the more important tools. And then I think we can talk about the details and the technicalities later. Uh, the other question that you asked, thinking about public space, right? Like I feel like um, often when we think about public space, at least as a person who grew up in a city, um, spaces like a mall or a cinema theater or a restaurant comes to mind, but public spaces technically should be streets, um, parks, lakefronts, basically that anything that you walk down your home and you reach the footpath, that can be, you know, a public space. And, you know, public toilets, public facilities, bus stops, bus stands. So these are public, public spaces where you can enter without any, uh, charge or which are technically supposed to be open and accessible for everybody and um, interestingly even digital space could be thought of as public space um thank you for that that's a very sort of broad understanding of what public space is and I, I don't think we're ever taught to sort of think about public space or define public space um in our everyday conversations or in school or in college or anywhere so i think this is super super interesting um so i want to ask you um how do you think safety in public spaces ties into the notion of justice? Okay, this is a great question. It's a heavy question, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it, I think at multiple levels, right? On one hand, I think um, the way that I think safety would tie into um, public space and justice is that... Uh, one of the quotes, I'm, I'm going to find the name of the person who said this and I'll get back to you. Um, where I read a quote in the course of my research where that every woman develops agoraphobia uh, on nightfall in the city. And it really stayed with me because the fear that an embodied fear, I think women, um, uh, girls and gender minorities in this in, in any urban space face once they you know navigate the city, is I think a particular type of everyday normalized violence that doesn't allow us access to opportunity space or just, I don't know, you can't take a walk when you want without constantly navigating for safety. So when we talk about justice, which is such a loaded term and concept, right? Like I think uh, to me, is it just that say 50% of the population in the city cannot think about accessing public space without constantly on fear of their life or body. And I think, you know, it, it that, that is one. Two, it's the fact that we navigate for safety so much. And as a, a lot of feminist geographers, feminist activists and writers have pointed this out, uh, in Violator in particular, right? Shilpa Fadke, Shilpa Ranade and Samira Khan's book, where they sort of articulate how uh, protectionism where parents, schools and, you, you know, universities tell girls and children, uh, women, not to go out after a particular point of time or to, you know, where every decision that happens in your life is somehow linked to your safety. That means that 
all the opportunities you've been deprived of should also be seen a form of as a, should also be seen as a form of violence because we, because of our understanding we often see or we construct violence in a particular way that oh if i go out of my house and then um, somebody harasses me on the street or i might be more vulnerable to a particular form of uh, sexual harassment or sexual violence therefore i will just not go out at all you know so there is like a lack of opportunity that exists and thirdly i think safety in public space particularly affects women from marginalized communities who do not have access to private vehicular ownership or who are already out in the streets working at night somehow there is also we have to complicate the idea whose safety are we talking about when we talk about urban safety and public space and who is this question referring because i think based on that the answers will widely differ so i'm not sure if i answered that question but i think it 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 has to do with understanding the location or the social location of the women we are referring to or the girls we are talking about and how that relates to what justice means because like i just finished recording an episode with uh, someone who is from a nomadic and denotified tribe and if you are you belong to a group that lives on you know in the city which has which is a migratory tribe and you don't have access to things like water or sanitation or you know even just safe housing so their justice then becomes or safety is then tied to structural conditions and the political economy of the city itself definitely i'm um, sneha i think something like all of what you're sharing brings up for me a concept that we use a lot in our work as well um uh, which is to ask people to think about how they might be living by a rape schedule um especially for a lot of women and a lot of queer people where every day from the time we wake up right within our households and when we're accessing public spaces we're making all these adjustments in our life to ensure that you know sexual violence doesn't occur um and to expand this idea to even think about all the other identities you're speaking of and to think of safety even beyond gender based violence there are all these accommodations and adjustments we do every day in public spaces to ensure that the space which is inherently violent does not exert any violence towards us so i think everything that you shared is so important and i've been thinking about a lot of this a lot i know that there's a right to be campaign also led by the amazing people at coro that really talks about like you know women just can't use a washroom in the city and it might seem like such a small thing but it's also so privileged because a lot of us can probably walk into a mall or go to a restaurant and use a washroom but a lot of women can't and just to quickly share that a lot of gender based violence and a lot of sexual violence happens around this right one of the communities i used to work with they had one of those government um, toilets in their basti but that toilet would be kept locked because the head of that person like in that slum community the head would store some storage grains in it and used it as his private space this meant that the women didn't really use the washroom all day and they would use the washroom at night and over time people started noticing this pattern that they would go to the washroom like they would go to this bunch of trees at like midnight or 2 am and it led to a lot of sexual violence because you were forcing them into inherently unsafe situations knowing what people around them are like and what the prevalence of sexual harassment is like so thank you for sharing this it really brought up a lot of this for me and it really also made me think about what all i do every day to make sure that i am safe and what my idea of safety also means in general what you what you said right like it also reminded me that 
this is so universally relatable for all women but something i think this kind of narrative to me also masks normalized structural violence at home because i think somewhere we are constantly we 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 assume i think often incorrectly that this uh, that the safe is uh, the home is uh, somehow inherently safer it's actually not true because i think from the research that i have done and i think a lot of people often point this out women are far more likely to experience violence at home women are far more likely to be murdered by their own families so the like the home is actually far more unsafe than public space itself but this often also brings me in in sharper relief brings to me in sharper relief um, the forms of violence that we normalize and the forms of violence we are constantly you know protecting ourselves from which definitely which i think which which is where we are you know it's it's sexual violence outside that we are constantly protecting from whereas uh you know marital rape is still not recognized as a crime in this country and we have the sitting cji say you know uh, ask these questions if the husband can even really rape a wife in 2021 so i feel like that i often like make a point to make that very clear when we're talking about public space yeah sorry please yeah go ahead no that's such a great point thanks neha in fact i'm uh, going to take us to the next question but also link this up with like the problem of urban infrastructure not being adequate right often in our work around gender based violence at home we talk about how like the only solution is not like legal help or mental health help it's also does your city have affordable housing does it have a safe house or shelter for survivors to go to and these are also all parts of urban infrastructure um and that's something that they don't take into account so you know my question for you is that i know your work centers around like urban development and municipal governance um and it's been fascinating for us to see how tangible infrastructure can play such a great role in ensuring that gender based violence is reduced or at least that survivors have support we'd love to hear from you that you know what are these conversations about built environment and justice for gender based violence what does it look like for this to intersect there is something that i mean i i am also i also went to law school so you know when you're studying law and we talk about equality um and you know the constitutional law which is really fascinating stuff right like the right to life and right to uh, you know dignity and right to equality what i've realized is that while these rights are guaranteed on paper uh and these are all you know the difference between formal equality and substantive equality and the actual uh, access or the realization of these rights um exists in the material provision of services and infrastructure therefore it's well and good for the supreme court or the constitution to say that there is a right to equality but that manifestation has to happen in municipal uh, law in municipal governance and urban development so i mean to me the question then becomes who are the people who are making the decisions that regulate and govern my everyday life so because i think which is something that is fundamental even in the report the focus i think a lot of feminist uh, geographers and just uh, researchers place is on the experiences of the everyday life so when you ask that question what does your everyday life how is that impacted you suddenly unpack so many things and like you rightly pointed out i actually wanted to say uh, even the right to be campaign which i just finished recording the episode and we're putting that up with deepa pawar from anubhuti and she was she spoke so beautifully and it was such an incredible conversation for me because she was pointing out how during the pandemic uh, when you have 
toilets that need to have like you know which are paid access a, fa a large family cannot afford to pay 60 to 70 rupees per day just to access the bathroom when there are no economic opportunities so you have you have to change so in order to respond to a crisis like the you know the coronavirus pandemic what you need city governments to actually think about the different communities and make urban infrastructure accessible to people i think there is a lot of questions around oh but if you make everything free uh what about you know it won't be used well or uh, where will you get the money from but those are exactly the questions that i think the privileged elites should be thinking about how do you fund urban infrastructure in a way that everybody in the city irrespective of their location is able to use and access them so the questions around how does gender-based violence intersect with urban infrastructure is critical because on one hand for instance if you're experiencing violence at home if you're experiencing sexual violence physical violence or any kind of violence at home if you want to leave your home you should at least have a safe space to go to how many women and girl children and even gender minorities and that, that's another thing right a lot of queer kids and queer communities uh, experience violence at home so if we want to be safe there should be a place that you know we want to leave and and go to for shelter second you want to have city design made in the way that women can use because uh, this is something that i think it's very critical to understand the gender roles and social roles of different people because women are seen usually as the primary caregivers for their children they're also looking for work uh, which is closer to their home they're looking for a uh, child care which is closer to their home so you want a uh, mixed use neighborhoods which allow for women not just of just upper class and upper caste communities but women across uh, different uh, cross sections of identities to be able to have affordable and accessible child care within their you know uh, within their vicinity and in addition to that something as simple as you know what produces safety in the city to me what produces safety is not surveillance infrastructure not cops when cops themselves can inflict so much violence on people there was a recent study that showed that the biggest perpetrators of violence against the trans community were law enforcement officials themselves so in this regard this safety in the city is produced by more girls occupying the city more women occupying the city more gender and sexual minorities occupying the city so the way that uh, so th this to me indicates that if you design public infrastructure thinking about the social economic and gendered roles not just from a you know a one perspective but from an intersectional perspective keeping in mind the historical and contextual specificities you can actually make and build equal and safer cities. So I think public infrastructure is one of the biggest sites for uh, feminist intervention, because as you pointed out, the, the bathroom problem is such a huge problem because so many girls and women, we don't drink water before we go out because access to a bathroom is not a given. And as uh, Deepa Pawar pointed out, the fact that women cannot uh, relieve themselves public in public the way that men are able to do because of you know just social impunity, uh, the fact that they charge uh, money to uh, avail access to the bathroom also sort of weaponizes this kind of body politics into making women pay. So there is literally a pink tax for existing in a woman's body in a way that 
you know, doesn't happen. And the same thing with, I think, the trans and gender minorities. So the fact that access to the bathroom in the city can become a site for violence is horrifying. So I think it's not enough that the NASA judgment has come out, right? Like you want these constitutional values to be reflected in your everyday environment, in your built environment, in your social environment, and, you know, in your political environment. Yeah, so I think a lot of uh, what you've just said um, kind of answers the next question, but maybe there's more examples or more specific cases you can um, talk about. Um, can we just take a moment to talk about how there are current structures of urban India um, enable injustice or violence or harm to occur to women or gender minorities um, and maybe even how these structures are violent or harm causing themselves? I mean, the fact that urban infrastructure is often in shambles in the city. The fact that like our footpaths are unworkable, the fact that we have automobile-centric design automatically makes the city inaccessible for a majority, not just women, but literally anyone who is not an upper-class person with access to a private vehicle. So basically, the city is made up of so many people, but urban development is designed around the automobile, which is a very small minority in the city. So just from the basic design and the uh, logics of urban development, there is, I think, structural violence that occurs because when you walk down the city, is the city you know, walkable? Are there ped- are there even footpaths that exist in good repair for you to be able to do that? And the fact is, all of these structures are also deeply ableist. So you have women or persons with disability who will not even be able to access the city in a way that they can, you know, participate on, a, on an equal level with, there is not even a remote chance, right? So I think physically, as an infrastructure and design issue, so many people are excluded in the city. But one of the biggest ways is basically just the lack of uh, street lights, the lack of 24/7 accessible uh, washrooms, the lack of. I mean, I don't know. I don't know whether how how much this happens in other cities, but in Bangalore in particular. Parks are shut during the day. They're only open in the morning um, and in the evenings, which essentially is like around the idea that a park is supposed to only be used for fitness activities. And some of this is also because of, I think, a lot of lobbying by resident welfare associations or city civic civic groups, but then who are predominantly, you know, uh, of a particular type of middle class in the city that see the use of these parks for their use rather than, I mean, I often think about where do people go when they want to take a nap in the afternoon? And if you're someone who works in on the street and you want to have lunch, why isn't the park open for you to go inside and, I don't know, sit and eat with your family? And if there are domestic workers who work in the city and are only free in the afternoon, and they want to take their children somewhere, the park isn't open. Or young people in love, if they want to just go somewhere and they don't want to pay money. Uh, so just just to think of one site, right? Like I, I feel like I could give a million examples when you think of each individual um, public space as to how this creates a situation where there is no understanding. And I think 
one of the biggest ways um i think the city itself is uh, perpetuating violence in in a, in a larger scale is this notion of the public and the private is is it's the sheer division which then has zoning practices where residential areas are dif- you know separated from commercial areas makes it extremely difficult so if you're a woman who is already underpaid and doing unpaid work at home and in order to do paid work you go out to do you know whether you work at a factory or whether you wherever you your place of work has to be if it's really far if you have to take multiple modes of transportation to get there all of these things marginalize women in particular because uh, they often don't have access to private vehicles even in a family that owns private vehicles so i mean i feel like yeah so it's 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 when we don't have systems that are free equal and public infrastructure in particular it harms women because you know when these things don't i mean the other thing is when when you have an unsafe city one of the first things that often families also do is take girls out of education for instance if you are experiencing sexual harassment on the way rather than fix that problem often it becomes an excuse or a reason because it's just more you know it's 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 harder to solve that problem it's easier to take you out of education and you know uh, i don't know get you married or you know it's it's so there are very varied ways in which this can happen the lack of bathrooms in schools or colleges in particular um especially when girls um uh, start menstruating the lack of facilities also become a huge impediment for their education so in that way i think structurally um current urban planning and current city design and like basically constructs a deep invisible structural violence against so many bodies you know in the city thanks for sharing that sneha i think there was such excellent points um just the idea that you know a space like what you would consider an inanimate space can also be a source of violence for so many of us i think that's something to really reflect upon at least for me and i hope for all of our listeners as well because it really makes me question what i'm dealing with every time i step out of my house um what are the different barriers and what are the barriers i don't notice because because of my privileges several barriers may not seem like those to me and you know this also takes me a lot of what you said takes me to my next question for you because i noticed ideas of protectionism also playing out in how we design our urban spaces and this protectionism can be towards you know the idea of our women but it can also be about protecting our women from um, a certain category of people right and like you mentioned earlier while loiter touches upon this quite beautifully so my question is that you know um how does protectionism play out when we construct public spaces and what is it that is harmful about like this protectionist perspective to urban infrastructure protectionism is the go to method for the paternalistic state i think every time like i feel like every time the question of women safety comes up and women safety also becomes a trojan horse for uh, states to sort of increase their own powers whether it's surveillance powers whether it is increased uh, police presence and increased you know just a uh, a uh, in- like more special and extraordinary laws and more um you know like i think you guys have actually talked about this extensively in your podcast as well about increased punitive measures which don't actually work especially criminal law is criminal law legal systems you know empowering them so i think protectionism constantly plays out uh, in whether it's in the home whether it's in, in in our educational institutions whether at the level of the state itself and um just to I mean 
sorry, I, I forgot the question. You talked about pro protectionism in what, in, how does it play out in the city? Is That was the question, right? Yeah, sorry. So uh, how it plays out in the city primarily is, look at every single time we have a widely reported, like, you know, very a public a spectacle around a particularly gruesome incident of violence, uh, yeah, uh, you see demands for more surveillance infrastructure and more police presence, and maybe in sometimes it's like more gender representation in police, which is which is fair. We should have gender representation in every facet of uh, of the state, but none of these things actually help make women feel safer. What actually makes women safer is the policies such as free bus uh, services, free public transport for women, which the Delhi government incidentally did. And they came under a lot of, um, uh, they drew a lot of flack where they were like, oh, but these are freebies. Oh, but uh, this is just some kind of like, uh, you're just doing this for votes. Okay, I honestly don't care why they're doing it, but what they did, actually, it's, it's one of the most feminist uh, things you can do in the city. You make transport free for women. You are sending an indication to every family that encourage women to go out. So earlier, if they were not sending their women out to do you know, to, to their work or to, I don't know, get groceries or whatever, where that division often starts at home, right? Like from a very young age, girls are supposed to be inside the house and boys will, you know, go out and do work. You're reversing that. You're allowing women to travel so that they don't have to now pay every time whether they're going to work or just to have fun like whatever it is you're making it so easy and just by this fact you're making every avenue of public transport safer for every other woman there so to me that is one way in which a protectionist idea will not think of that will not think about encouraging women to occupy public spaces the other thing is with respect to i mean i'm sure you know everybody's heard the really terrible ideas of uh, having women register at police stations or you know we will like i i can't even i mean it's 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 such a blatant uh such a bad faith thing because you know if you just listen to feminist scholars and that's the thing right like why Lauda came 10 years ago Everything that I think we're talking about today, they've written about in this book. And a lot of people have written about this extensively in other spaces as well. Uh, but that, you know, nobody listens. And because I don't think they want to listen, right? Like, I don't think that's because, you know, they're not aware of these questions. The, the other thing I wanted to say in terms of protectionism is that one of the things I've talked about, you know, is uh, Jane Jacobs has a very famous quote where she talks about natural surveillance, which is eyes on the street, right? Like where you say that if you have a vibrant, uh, city design if you have a city uh, if you have a street sorry vibrant street design if you have a street that's occupied by a large group of people who are constantly moving uh, your street is automatically safer I feel like that's definitely apt in our context except it's slightly different also because what I think in India being seen on the streets can very quickly become patriarchal surveillance because I don't want to be seen, uh, I don't know, hanging out with a boy or a girl um, in my neighborhood because what if somebody calls my parents or they will notice me. So what you need to have are highly diverse 
uh, neighborhoods. So there is no community surveillance, which then sort of constantly locates people because, you know, that's a big, big aspect for us. And protectionism, on the other hand, is only focused on protecting women and girls from specific forms of violence, not all forms of violence, because protectionism inevitably assumes that the home is the safer place when it actually is not. So essentially, you can be beaten at home. That's all right, because that's a legitimate form of violence, because it's structured as part of, you know, the cis Brahminical in heteronormative family. But that should not happen outside. And as you pointed out, the thing with respect to uh, the othering that happens, that there are men of a particular community that are then, you know, harming our women, easily plays into these kinds of really Islamophobic, casteist, you know, classist narratives, because in one of the episodes I spoke to Dr. Sneha Anavarapu and her research talks about how public spaces in the city, particularly cabs, right? Like where cab drivers are constructed as the people who will perpetrate uh, violence or harassment against the female passengers, uh, rather than looking at violence as a much larger, you know, a systemic problem. So you, if, if for instance, my safety hinges on the villainization of an entire class of men in the city, how is that truly safe, right? Like that's actually not okay. That's actually, you know, injustice at the cost of a false sense of, you know, safety that is being perpetrated. Thank you for that. That was uh, such good examples and points you've made there. Um, again, like I'm learning so much with this conversation. I don't think I've thought of most of these issues. I actually listened to your episode with uh, Sneha and that was such a good episode. It's so insightful. So thank you for that. Um so this is the final question we have for you and it's kind of an aspirational question and has some it is something that has briefly come up in uh, one of our past episodes um so we've grappled with uh, in this podcast space and I'm sure outside as well uh with the idea of what a just world would look like and for this episode we'd specifically like to explore with you what a just public space would look like so could you give us three recommendations on how we can build spaces that aid in building a world free of gender-based violence or are most sensitively responsive to gender-based violence? In the Feminicity podcast series, I opened the first episode talking about Sultana's dream, which is basically a short story that imagines, you know, uh, I think a feminist utopia, which I think is what a just society or a just space would also be. Basically, she talks about like an ecological paradise where she says there are so many trees. And then she talks about talks about all these women out in the street. And she describes a world of scientific advancement and no police. She says this is not a world with police. This is not a, a world with criminal magistrates. So, I mean, of course, all the men have been confined to Zananas and Mardanas. Or, you know, so that's that's the part of the fantasy in, in Sultana's dream. But uh, what she describes is a, a world where I think um, people are just people. There are no categorizations or discrimination based on, you know, the where they come from. And I think when we imagine the city, it's really important. Uh, I think when we imagine any kind of just society, I think the focus should be on the conditions that foster violence, the conditions that foster exploitation, and the conditions that produce unsafety rather than, you know, looking at things from a superficial perspective. Because tomorrow, I mean, this is something that we talked about in our episode on Trimnamba as well. How many people will you jail? Because the the persistence uh, and the pervasive nature of violence against women exists across 
every cross-section of society. There is not a single community in this country or around the world that can actually say, oh, we actually don't, you know, harm women and girls in our communities. That doesn't exist. So it then, to me, then it becomes, uh, imagining this would then uh, focus on abolition of those conditions that create the situation. And as for policy recommendations, I think, Fundamentally, there were, I mean, four recommendations I made in terms of infrastructure. First of all, urban infrastructure should be designed to be completely accessible, open and free to use for everybody in the city. And the design should be made, keeping in mind people who are left out of traditional imaginations of who is the user of the city. So this yeah, necessarily involves persons with disability. And within that, particularly women and girls and old women and pregnant women. So because the category of women also is just so complex, it's necessary to essentially have an intersectional perspective and invest in social infrastructure. Don't privatize what should be public spaces and public services. They should be open and accessible to everyone because the second you privatize an essential or any public service, you automatically make it inaccessible to anyone who can't afford it. So it's 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 an inherently unjust uh, system. The other thing is, who is making the city? Who is making the decisions that govern urban policies uh, and public spaces in particular? We need diversity in the rooms where these decisions are taken. Particularly, you need planners, architects, and lawyers, just anybody who is involved in the city to be experts in feminist thinking. I think the notion somehow that only people who work on um, issues with respect to women should know these questions. No, but if you're doing anything that affects the city, you automatically have to be an expert both on issues of gender, class, caste, and you should know the history of the city that you work with. So I think importance of social sciences is essentially, you know, it's, it's so critical um, in, in these kinds of what are seen as techno-managerial exercises or technical fields. And thirdly, I think we need a constitutional change and we need uh, changes in laws that reflect uh, things like feminist urban planning and things like thinking about cities from a justice-oriented uh, perspective, which then requires us to strengthen community participation to a point where it's not something that's nominal, where you create a plan and then people will consult and then you decide whether you want to do this, listen to them or not, but they're co-creators, right? And I think this kind of work has happened in other places. I think it, it happens whether you have uh, safety audits, exploratory walks, which women from a particular neighborhood can, you know, are being, are, are involved in this process so that they can tell you uh, what they need in their particular areas, because people who live in a particular area are experts on their areas. And what would be the responsibility of city governments to do is to listen to those who are traditionally silenced from the same community. So the gendered perspective has to be critically integrated. And yeah, so I think based on that, like once you start thinking that way, the solutions sort of come by themselves because then you have to collect data gender disaggregated data from different different kinds of points because now i think what happens is if you're collecting data about men and women but within that kind of data you don't uh, look for cross sections of 
caste, uh, class, religion, and other kinds of identities, which is why you need a proper, so you, you should be able to identify different groups and make policy decisions based on that. No, that was incredible. Um, thank you so much, Sneha. Um, I think it's so lovely to also be able to think about these things as really tangible demands from our local governments, right? And to not just think about it only at the state or national level. I think that's something that I really enjoy about your work as well, that it engages local civic communities. This excerpt is from the book Why Loiter, written by the authors Shilpa Fatke, Samira Khan and Shilpa Ranade. Women push the boundaries in various ways, cajoling, threatening, inventing convoluted stories, and lying in a bid to increase their access to the public, even when they do not use explicitly feminist language. These acts of rebellion do contribute to pushing women's claims to occupy public space. At the same time, these performances also put women into neat pigeonholes, which might work against their making other, more radical claims to the public. Seeking access as visibly respectable and feminine women also excludes all those women who do not wish to be feminine or respectable in their dress and demeanor. In the short term, tall tales and elaborate masquerades might allow us to seek pleasure in public space. In the long run, however, what we need are not covert strategies but the demand for unconditional access to public space so that women may walk freely anytime and anywhere in the city. We're really trying to like push the boundaries with imagining a just world and uh, your perspective on just public spaces and safer public spaces and accessible public spaces, um, especially keeping in mind how all uh, identities intersect with gender. Um, has really helped us think a lot more about uh, how we move forward and where we go from here. To our listeners, if you like this episode, please follow Sneha's podcast, The Feminist City, and do follow her at Magic Anarchist on Twitter. For anyone listening in, please leave us your questions as voice notes on Anchor or in our DMs. We'd love to hear from you. Also, don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at One Future Collective and at One Future underscore India on Twitter. You can also keep an eye out for our future episodes that are out every second and fourth Thursday of the month. This podcast is brought to you by OFC and it's produced by Richard. Until next time, please do stay with us on our journey as we search for justice.